Uh, the words to that hymn are absolutely gorgeous, but the tune is not quite so easy. Well, if you're looking at the sermon outline, it's real simple. Number four, under some forms of false Christianity, move that up to number two, and then number two will be three, and number three will be four. And the reason I'm doing that is because I want to follow these according to the text. So Jesus often criticizes false faith, false discipleship, false Christianity. In fact, we might say that false discipleship is more dangerous than unbelief because people feel they are believing in Jesus, but actually their faith is centered on something else. And Jesus is just an add-on or an assistant to get what they really want. I'll give you one example of Jesus' criticism of false faith. And it comes from the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, where Jesus says, you say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do miracles and drive out demons in your name? And Jesus says, I will say to you, I never knew you. Depart from me. So what exactly is false discipleship or false faith? It's when we make something central to our lives other than Christ. Jesus says in John 6, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have eternal life and I will raise you up on the last day. He says, if you come to me, you will never thirst. If you believe in me, you will not be hungry. Jesus is saying that he is the source, he is the satisfaction of all of our deepest needs. That he does not intend for us to make him an add-on to a different pursuit or a different goal or a different center and focus in our lives. So let's go through John 6 and see some of the forms of false faith. In verse 2, we are told that great crowds, great multitudes follow Jesus. Now, when I grew up in eastern Iowa, going to church was just something we did. Everybody did it. It was just part of our culture. And so, baptized as infants, confirmed in eighth grade, attend the occasional potluck, put a little money in the offering plate, and voila, you're a Christian. I eventually realized that just 
belonging to a crowd is not the same thing as having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't come to church just because it's the thing to do. I come to church because I want to recall and enhance my relationship with him. The center of my life is not going with the flow. The center of my life is what Christ has done. A little bit later in the text, in verse 15, we are told that Jesus withdrew from the crowd after he had performed this amazing multiplication of the fishes and the loaves. And he withdrew because he knew they were coming to make him a political king. We're going to hear more about this next week on Palm Sunday where Jesus rides into Jerusalem and the crowd says, the king, he's finally come. But they had an external view of Jesus as king, an external view of his kingdom. I can perhaps explain this best with a 20th century Jewish theologian. Uh, I don't tell many people this. He's my favorite Jewish mystic, Martin Buber. And Martin Buber says, I have great admiration for Jesus. I admire him. But I don't believe he's the Messiah because we still have wars. We still have injustice. We still have disease. We still have people who are starving. We still have people who are suffering physically. If he was the Messiah, that should all be gone. That's the earthly, external view of Jesus as king. He's going to get rid of these pesky Romans, and he's going to set things right. And the people who came out in the Palm Sunday crowd and acclaimed Jesus as king, he didn't fulfill what they expected. A little bit later in the text, uh, after they've gone across the lake, the Jews come to him and he says, I know why you're coming, you want more bread. A lot of people Jesus is their miracle Messiah. He can heal them or solve their problems. He is the one, well, it's kind of like a fire alarm or an ax, a fire ax in a glass box, you know, break in case of emergency. Otherwise, I don't need Jesus. It's just that occasional miracle that I need.
And Jesus says, he says, don't work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life. And the Jews pick up on the word work. A lot of people see Jesus as a teacher who tells us how to live. And I cannot count with my fingers on both hands and even including my toes the number of times I've heard a sermon where the punchline is, this is what Jesus wants you to do. This is what Jesus wants good little boys and girls to do. Uh, I went to a church in Forest Grove, uh, not the Lutheran church. I heard good things about it. I wanted to see it for myself. Uh, this is in the old days. I actually walked two miles to church and walked two miles home. Strange how it's two miles both ways, but that's the way it works. And I got home and Sandy said to me, how was it? And I said, they haven't met a rule they don't like. <laughs> the whole sermon was laying another rule on me, this week's assignment. Well, those are the basic forms of false Christianity that we meet in chapter 6. And many of the disciples quit following Jesus because he didn't meet whatever their expectation was. And so Jesus comes to his 12 and he says, what about you guys, you can leave too? And Peter says, where can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Now, Peter's saying two things. First of all, he's saying, I've tried everything. I've tried people. I've tried this. I've tried that. I thought maybe if I had enough money or if I had enough joy in my life or if I had enough pleasure or maybe if I was powerful enough. I could do this thing called life, and he couldn't. He always came up short. Uh, Peter, like all of us, is something of a t perpetual two-year-old. I can do it myself. I'm strong enough. I'm capable enough. I'm smart enough. I'm clever enough. I can do this thing called life myself, and the fact is that I can't, and I don't think you can either. And Peter says, where can we go? We tried everything else. We've had our fling with money and with sex and with power. We've had our fling with trying to be important people. There's nothing out there that can give me the kind of life in all of its abundance, in all of its wonder, in all of its reality, in all of its joy, in all of its peace. There's nothing out there. Jesus, where could we go? And then he says, you have the words of eternal life. 
And you noticed I added a very significant word, you alone. Only you are my bread that satisfy my deepest longings, my great hunger. Only you are my wine that satisfies my thirst, that quenches that strong, pervasive thirst. Only you can give us life through your death, through giving your body up to the cross, through shedding your blood for our sins. Only you are the source of eternal life. Now, I want to conclude, and this isn't in the outline, but I want to go back to that Matthew 7 text where Jesus says, yeah, you prophesy in my name, you drive out demons in my name, but I don't know you. You know what the next thing he says is? He who listens to my words and does them is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. Now, I have to admit, it took me a long time to figure this out. It, it sounds like another one of those sermons I chastised just a moment ago about, you know, here's your assignment for the week. But I want you to look into your Greek text. I'll give you a minute. <laughs> and I want you to go up to verse 17 where Jesus says, a good tree, and there's different version, bears much fruit, produces much fruit. Did you know that that's exactly the same word as in verse 24, where Jesus says, whoever hears my word and does them? The NIV has whoever puts them into practice. It's exactly the same word, same tense, exactly the same word. A good tree produces good fruit. If you listen to my words, you will do them. Do you get the connection? Well, maybe I need to give you another clue. The key to the Sermon on the Mount is in chapter 5, verse 17, where Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now think about that. The Pharisees fasted two days a week, Tuesdays and Thursdays. How many days did you fast last week? The Pharisees gave a tenth of everything they owned, including their garden vegetables. How many of you are going to put a carrot in the offering plate? How in the world can we surpass them 
Well, you know the answer to that in two ways. First of all, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The efforts of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law pale in comparison to the righteousness we have in Christ given to us. Our lives are made perfectly right. Our lives are made worthwhile and significant, productive, because we have received the robe of righteousness, Christ's perfect righteousness as a gift. Okay, pastor, what's the second way? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were obeying and were doing what they did in order to get God's approval. Because we already have God's approval. Forgiveness, love, righteousness. Our motive is not to coerce God into loving us. Our motive is to show God how much we appreciate and value his love. How that righteousness has made a huge difference in our daily life. How Christ's righteousness becomes the center and the focus and the power of our lives today and forever. I can't say it better than Martin Luther did in his little treatise, The Liberty of a Christian, The Freedom of a Christian. He says, Christian life is nothing more than doing what you already are. You're already righteous. That empowers you, that excites you, that inspires you, that motivates you to live in a right way. I've just given you the keys to Christianity, the keys to the kingdom. Jesus is not an add-on or a personal assistant to help me get the things I want. Jesus is the center and the focus of my life to get the things I desperately need. Big difference. Genuine Christianity realizes there's nothing in this whole wide world of ours that can satisfy our hunger, that can quench our thirst, our deep inner spiritual hunger and thirst, that only Jesus, Him alone, He has the franchise on life. He is the source of eternal life, which happens right now, right today, and never ends. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
don't allow us to use Jesus as a personal assistant or an add-on to our own striving, our own desires, but help us to see that in him we have received everything we need for this life and for eternity. We ask in his name. Amen.